Welcome to our podcast, Bad, It's All About Crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad, All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. And welcome to BAD, All About Crime podcast, brought to you by the BAD Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. My name is Andy Muir and joining me later in the episode to talk about today's book are Suzanne Leal, Dr Sue Turnbull and Catherine de Palou-Menegay. But today's episode, we're talking about the new debut, The Good Mother, written by Ray Cairns, the novel set in Northern Ireland, where an Australian mother finds herself fighting with her past to save her family. But that's not the only story we'll be talking about, because the book has had possibly one of the most curious pathways to publication I've heard about. So to get things started, welcome Ray. Thanks for having me along. Now, the book is about to come out. Um, It's getting some incredible sort of feedback on social media. You've got a pretty active Instagram following. How hard have you worked to kind of build that? I think I've done it kind of organically, but it was important to me to connect with people in the industry and connect with readers. And yeah, it's just kind of happened over the last... Three, four years, I guess. Because it's sort of the crime writing community is quite supportive, isn't it? Amazing. The crime writing community have really taken me under their wing and had my back from the very beginning, actually. I've been really lucky. It's been, uh, I think I figured it out the other day, it's been eight years in total from the very beginning. Um, And yeah, I've been incredibly fortunate. Which is kind of, that's the really interesting part about this story. I mean, we will talk about the book itself, but, you know, getting it published is really fascinating because you were nominated for Best Debut at the Ned Kelly Awards in 2021, Mm -hmm. but the book wasn't traditionally published. No. No, I didn't even know that could happen, (laughs) (laughs) that a self-published book could get... um, to the shortlist of those awards. So let's talk about that. So how did that happen? Okay, do you, the Ned Kelly or going way back? Going way back. Okay. Where, where was the first idea of I want to write a book, I want to write a crime book and this is going to be the story? Okay, well the idea for the book uh, was sparked way back when I uh, worked in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. I was mentoring disadvantaged youth there and um, they were kind of kids of the paramilitaries, the IRA, the UVF and stuff. And I was dating a guy and I found out totally by accident one night that he himself was a paramilitary, the very people I was working against. So, of course, I broke it off and cut all ties and um, moved forward in my work and stayed another year. Um, But it kind of stayed with me, um, particularly when I got home and was processing all that had happened. Um, That kind of what if, what he hadn't told me someone else had mentioned it in passing assuming I knew I thought when would he have told me when would I have found this out and then there was also that was it a real relationship because I was dealing with both sides in the conflict I I start started to wonder whether he there was an ulterior motive I just couldn't make sense of the whole thing Um, So that idea stayed with me for many years and I've always been a creative, I've got a degree in performing arts, storytelling has always been important to me. And then when my daughter went off to high school, I decided that I wanted to have a go at putting this idea on the page um, and it kind of 
merged with the I don't know that thing being a mother and saying you know I'll do anything to protect my children and and, that, and those two ideas came together um, and I went along to the Sydney Writers Festival and I did a one day course with Mark Lamprell and in the um, in that course I got to pitch my story idea and he just said he loved it go away write it I'd love to read it when you're finished so I did I spent eight months writing it giving it a go doing a first draft I can't believe I handed him that draft at the end of the eight months now I what I didn't know back then um and he said to me you've nailed the story you've got the characters your dialogue's pretty solid um but you need craft you need more craft so I did a year-long mentorship with Catherine Heyman and she put me through my paces and it was an incredible experience and I'm very grateful to her I learned a lot from her she um taught me about place and setting and digging in and being brave with my choices about character and plot and yeah really exploring options um so we did 10,000 words at a time and each 10,000 words I had to apply what she taught me the last time um and a year later, I had the manuscript and that I pitched to an agent and she took me on. And it was all very exciting and amazing and she put it out to publishers and there was crickets. Yeah. Um, and that was my first real reality check. You know, it was – everything had been positive to that point. And she wasn't sure what to do with the manuscript at that point. I was pretty confident that it needed more work. Um, and so we amicably parted ways. I took the manuscript back and I put it in for a manuscript appraisal and applied the changes that were suggested there. And from that, I got a new agent. <laughs> and she then pitched it to publishers. And this time there were some bites and some interest, but it didn't get over the line. And then I got sick. So I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and I was really ill for two years. They, I was in and out of doctors and specialists and hospitals and my hair fell out and I was wearing a wig and I couldn't string a sentence together to speak let alone write one so for two years writing went on the back burner um then I found the right medication and came good and was ready to jump back in and then my agent said I'm closing my agency for personal reasons and at that point I went wow is the universe trying to tell me something here and I spoke to my writing group, who are an incredible supportive group of women, and a couple of other professionals that I'd met throughout the years, again, in, in the crime writing community, very supportive, and made the decision to back myself and to, I wanted the story out there, I wanted to draw a line under it. I felt like so much had gone into the story. Um, I wanted to put it out so I could move on to my next one. So then I set off on the path of learning about publishing wow there's a lot involved <laughs> so I had kind of two hats I had my writing hat and then I had my publisher hat and I had to learn everything from the ground up um, I found a professional editor to ed edit the book I found a professional cover designer but obviously I had to do the briefing um, I had to learn about formatting and bisect codes and uh, categories and publicity and marketing and everything um so I spent 
that was I started in February and I published the book in December and was very fortunate to get the backing of Melissa Doyle um, who sent it to a couple of people and from that I got a Sunday Telegraph um, interview which for a self-published author was amazing. It's really interesting because um, people don't realise you know, the amount of work that actually goes into not only writing a book but then actually getting it to market. So when you're self-publishing, you don't actually have the publisher doing all of that work for you. You are, you are actually doing every single bit. You are and there's only 24 hours in a day. That's right and you've got everything else that you've got in your life. And I only have like um, it's not it's a such specialist knowledge. I'm even loading files up and yeah so each day was a huge learning curve but I do love that. Like that's something I thrive on. I like to learn. I like to improve so um, that that was enjoyable at a level for me. <laughs> um, in the January so I released it in December and then in the February, Belinda Publishing, Belinda Audio Publishing, reached out to me, um, read the book and offered me an audiobook contract, which was incredible. A, a sight-impaired woman had contacted them and said she really wanted to hear it, to listen to the book. Um, she was trying to read on Braille and she just wanted to listen. So, yeah, that was amazing because then all of a sudden I was a hybrid author. I, I had the e-book and print rights and was dealing with those, but... Um, Belinda were doing the audiobook rights and that came out in June and it did really well. Um, I was really pleased with that. And then in July, out of – well, it was a real surprise to me. In fact, a friend rang me and said, congratulations, it's amazing, you've been shortlisted for the best debut, Ned Kelly. And I went, no, I haven't. <laughs> I think you might have it wrong. And I brought up social media and found it and my life changed in three weeks. So I went from being on my own, essentially managing a company, you know, all the different aspects of it and different hat, wearing different hats, to having a team behind me. Um, I think I got the two weeks after the Ned Kellys, I got an agent, um, Jeanne Rickmans at Cameron's Management, and she was incredible. And then a week later, I had was offered the two-book contract with HarperCollins. Um, and all of a sudden I had a team of these amazing industry professionals behind me. I had an editorial team. I had a design team. You know, they ran with a cover. And, um, yeah, it's been an extraordinary experience kind of doing it again. Um, the editing process was really in-depth. You know, we finessed the novel. I had uh, my acquiring editor do an edit with me and then I had an in-house editor do an edit and then I had the proofreader to do an edit. So I have no idea what version we're up to with this book. Mm. <laughs> but each time it's improved and, and the people that have added to it um, have, have definitely improved the book along mm. the way. Do you think that having gone through the, the self-publishing process and then the traditional publishing, do you think that you learnt more by going that way than the traditional path where it's all sort of you, you have the team from day one? I think I learnt to respect each element of of the process and therefore in dealing with, say, my publicity rep at, at HarperCollins, I, I understand that I have to contribute to that and I it's as much what I'm prepared to put in um, and it was the same with the cover design or the blurb. Like I've just kind of kept saying to them, tell me what you want. 
I'll do it, I'm there, I want to make this a success, I want to get it out to as broad a readership as possible. And and I do, I, it's always been about making the book better from the very beginning, from eight years ago. Every step of the process has been about learning and getting better. So in that process, I'm guessing that when the your publisher came on board, um, as you said, you, you had a couple more edits that you went through. Was that tightening the manuscript? Was it expanding certain parts? What, what were they looking so for? So I cut 5,000 words. Then From, I, what was the original length? Uh, 84,000. Right. Um, and then I added 10,000 after mm-hmm. that. And there are new scenes. Um, I really expanded on a couple of the characters, drawing the more minor characters, drawing them out. In fact, that's happened throughout the process. Like I started off very much with the main characters and each step of the way, like Ma- um, the father, Max, has really come along a lot more and he's got a lot more scenes and, and exploring that relationship um, has deepened the novel a bit, I think. But so, yeah, it was... Finessing the writing, but it was also just adding more scenes. I was surprised at the depth of the edit that I did with HarperCollins, but I'm really pleased with it. Yeah. Is there anything that you had to lose that you kind of go, oh, I really, I wish that was still in there? No, but I think part of that is respecting the expertise of the people I was dealing with. Um, Ultimately, I'm a debut novelist. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And... I trust the people that are around me. Yeah. So uh, just in terms of the editing, it's, sometimes it's really hard to self-edit. Mm. And so when you're kind of publishing yourself, like how, how different was the process from doing it all on your own to then having an editor kind of giving you your notes, expecting you to contribute? Um, what was that engagement like? I think Catherine Heyman really set me up well for that yep. because when we, we did the 10,000 words at a time, she gave me very extensive, very, very tough notes. And the first, say, 20,000 was about me learning not to be resistant to the notes and resistant to the editing process and say, okay, so there's a problem here. If, if you're raising a problem, I need to solve that. That's my job as a writer, not to argue back with you, oh, yes, but so-and-so you know, did this in their past. If the reader doesn't know that, they don't know it. Yeah. So I think Catherine gave me that. That was um, – it really taught me that. Um, and then I learnt to uh, really grab on to any editorial notes. My writing group's also quite tough, so mm-hmm. they would pull me up. We read each other's work and they would say, well, I don't know what you're saying there or this character, I don't understand why they're doing that. Or So there's – Again, I've had so many people generously contribute their knowledge um, to my growth that, to help me grow as a writer. Yeah. Um, from Mark Lamprell to Catherine to my writing group to various people that have read it since, crime writers and, and other authors. Um, so when I came to HarperCollins, yes, it was hard, but in a really good way. I don't know, I, I kind of learned yeah. to embrace that. I think as a as a writer, I think you have to embrace that. Otherwise, um, and, and I suppose okay, I, I, I suppose that's the thing a lot of people think about self publishing is that 
it's about your ego and you can go away and just you can put whatever you want out there and I'm sure there are people who do that but there's a lot of people who work really really hard at it and for whatever reason don't initially get into traditional publishing whether it's the quality of the work which I think was definitely the case with me certainly on my first go round um, or whether it's just not the time for that novel or um, yeah hmm. Well, we probably should talk more about the novel itself because, you know, as much as I love talking about writing and the process, you know, the readers out there are interested more in the story <laughs> and the characters. So, you know, we have a kind of tradition with Australian crime writing of a investigative character, for whatever reason, going back to their um, often uh, a small country town that they grew up in where there's a problem that they need to solve before they can move on with their lives. But this is kind of slightly different because it's the same pattern, the same sort of story mechanics, but your character's going to Northern Ireland. And um, I wonder if you could just sort of maybe give us a, a small kind of overview of, of who your main character, Sarah Calhoun, is. Okay. Well, Sarah is a um, divorced Australian soccer mum of three, but she's keeping secrets, serious, scary secrets from everyone that she loves. Um, she's an everyday person. She has no particular skills in fighting um, those that use guns or, you know, fighting paramilitaries or anything. What she has is is her love and commitment to her family um, and she will do anything to protect her family. And that's a really big part of this story, isn't it? Like this is a story about a mother and, I mean, as the kind of blurb says, it's, you know, what would a mother do to protect her son? Um, and that's a really strong point of difference between a lot of other sort of crime novels is that sort of family element, that sort of mother. I think that idea of an everyday person being thrown into extraordinary circumstances, that's what I like to write. I really yeah. want to understand how and explore kind of how they will manage a situation that they're well in over their head um, and how far will they go and what will they do and ha how will they draw on whatever skills they do have. Um, it, that, it's that that interests me. I, I'm interested in the character of the people and, and what they're going to have to face about themselves to succeed. Yeah. Is it, are you interested in exploring, you know, the, the, the motivations or pushing that character to the the limit, the extreme. That was my whole thing with her was um, throwing her in more and more difficult situations, make it worse, make it worse, make it worse, because ultimately if you hit that that bottom, that's when you face, I don't know, that, that's when she has to really um, find out what, what's at her heart, what yeah. what is what is the most important thing to her and I think she also has to face, but she can't control everything. Because mm. I think often as, oh, I don't know, and this is, this is, speaking on about me as opposed to Sarah and we're very, we are different but you know that idea of trying to control everything in your kids lives to keep them safe um, it was a topic of conversation a lot amongst my friends so I, I did want to explore that you know yeah because it's kind of like she could um, very early on in the novel she could sort of say because the the catalyst for this story is that her eldest teenager is wins a very prestigious placement in a soccer camp, which means that he has to go to Ireland. And she resists it, but her ex-husband says, no, no, it's good for him, he should go, you know, this is such a great opportunity. 
the story would have ended if she said, no, I'm putting my foot down, he's not going to Ireland. Mm-hmm. But she relents. And so it's kind of, it's that's sort of the start of this character's growth, isn't it? It is. Letting go. And, and that idea that I think throughout the novel, she often doubts her own judgment. And I think as, uh, I don't know if it's as a woman or whatever, but I'm often questioning my own judgment and my gut instincts. And I, I really wanted to explore that, that her instincts, you know, are they are they solid or is she an unreliable narrator or is she, um, you know, how, how is she going to make decisions when she doesn't fully trust them? Because she's made mistakes in the past when she thought she knew what was happening. Yeah. I mean, like Ireland and the, the troubles there, like the scars that Sarah's dealing with, that they run deep and they're, they're all about trust and, you know, allegiances and, you know, when, when you've been betrayed, it's very hard to sort of trust again, isn't it? It is. And the thing, certainly in my experience in Northern Ireland, while I am so very grateful to the people there who let me in their homes and um, in their children's lives and and what they shared with me, it was a place where ev- there was an ambiguity to every person that I related to um I didn't you kind of everyone was always feeling each other out um deciding what you were and I didn't fit when I was there um I wasn't Catholic I wasn't Protestant I was Australian that was my nationality you know that's very very much a part of how things were there so the ambiguities over there do mess with you a bit um when I got home I struggled a little bit with that about um, with, within relationships and just trying to figure out what people's ultimate m- motives were behind things. Um, and then obviously there's also the generational trauma, trauma over there over years, um, which I also wanted to explore in the book. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating history, you know, aside from the novel, that sort of that inability for... Ireland to sort of find peace. I mean, the troubles are sort of bubbling up again. Um, Something I really wanted to talk about in the book or explore because I think in 1998 it was like, oh, there's there's a peace. Mm. And the rest of the world just kind of went, okay, well, you're at peace now. Get on with it. And you had people whose only skills were kidnappings, bomb-making, gun-running, drug-running, and they were just expected to move on i'm not sure what skills how they could transfer those skills to normal mm. life um so I, I think that the idea that they're at peace when there's you, you've kind of got people who have been taught to hate each other and to not trust each other and they've actually dehumanized each other and then all of a sudden they're supposed to come together as a community and work together and strive towards peace and there are so many people over there that are doing that and doing yeah. an incredible incredible job of that I am talking about those who are on the fringe, who are have been raised in paramilitary organisations. Um, and that was part of what I wanted to do with the boys that I, I have in the novel that I worked with, that, that, that Sarah worked with, and then um, at seeing them grown up and the yeah. impact of that process on them. Mm. Um, it's such a complex... It is complex. And, and, I mean, as your your novel sort of touches on this as well, but the idea of people disappearing, like we sort of know through true crime um, that, you know, when someone's missing, that family is never mm-hmm. able to grieve. 
it's just this absence and you're sort of talking about a whole society of disappeared people. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, you've, you've, you've got Say Nothing by yeah. Patrick Roddenkeith and it's, you know, it, it, it does explore that idea of the disappeared and the impact on the family and on the children and it's just that idea that someone can be taken and that's it and it was part of the way they dealt with things. Mm. So sort of getting back to your novel, did you sort of have a favourite character that you were sort of writing about, apart from Sarah? I liked exploring the relationship with Max because I think that that was a now, Max complex... Is, Max is Sarah's dad. Max is Sarah's dad. But also um, at the same time, Sarah's relationship with Riley and how that, as he grows up, kind of how that breaks down between yeah. them. Um, so, and Riley, Riley is, is the, the son, the 16-year-old son. son, sorry, who goes over to Dublin and obviously when he goes there, he grows up a lot and he is out of his mother's fairly... She's quite a, a, a bit of a helicopter mum and he manages to move out of that control. Um, and then for me, the boys, um, yep. Liam and Declan, um, and seeing them. McNulty, are you a fan of The Wire? I did enjoy The Wire, yeah. <laughs> what about Detective Alex Stone? I loved writing him, yeah, because he's just so dogged and, and determined and, and he's got his own history and his own um, baggage and damage and um, and he's at first he comes across as being very, I think, uh, clear and um, with good motives and stuff yeah. and then start to question those a bit, um, that there's is, there is some personal biases and personal... Yeah. Baggage. Do you find – is it easier to write male characters or female? <laughs> uh, female is a straight-off answer. Yeah. Um, but male dialogue is very different. And so I spend a lot of time um, watching police shows and stuff and reading because I've got a degree in performing arts so many years ago. I was an actor and so I read a lot of scripts and, and, and went through. And, and male dialogue is much more uh, truncated – it's truncated. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we talk around the edges, you know, sort of. Yeah. But then other times it's very, very direct. <laughs> but yeah, I enjoyed trying to really work on that. That was part of what my learning was, you know, really differentiating in the dialogue, the different voice yeah. of people and, and a teenage voice versus, a you know, a man in his 60s versus. I love that. I mm. just, it really interests me. I mean, I'm the kind of person that sits there in a, restaurant or cafe and just listens to people i love can, it can you write in a cafe I've, I've never been able to do it it's i get I, distracted yeah so i listen in a cafe and get ideas and scribe down ideas and um for dialogue or just just yeah listening to voices and the atmosphere and stuff but i can't actually yeah. do the writing there no this is about an australian going back to belfast um the city as a location and a character mm. Now, you'd, you'd already been there. You'd spent time there, you know, 20-odd years ago. Did you go back? What was the – how did you kind of recapture that city? So I went back in 2015, uh, took my husband back um, just to kind of walk the streets again and get a feel for what it was now versus what my memories of it were then. And then I went back again the following year with – took my kids back because I felt like I wanted to share with them kind of what – that was it's such a big part of my life. Um, and it was when I was there that I, I um, realised I, I, the city was as much a character um, 
and that it was important to draw those those out the the place and the sense of place and and how yeah it's 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 come alive a lot since when I since I was there in the 90s it it has a, a brighter energy I can't explain it any other way but it's um but it still has that undercurrent the whole time. Mm. Like you, walk, you are walking past quite violent murals that people don't even notice. Yeah. And there is that great, humongous peace wall, peace wall uh, through the communities that's been there longer than the Berlin Wall was there. Um, and it's big. It's, it's tall and thick and they still close the gates at night. And, um, and that has an impact. It separates the communities. Yeah. Um, and it's telling you you're not safe with the other community if the wall needs, you know, if it needs closing up at night. So all of that, I have really wanted to put that into the novel as much as I could. But obviously it's also an outsider's perspective on a town. I wanted to be respectful of that because I haven't lived their experience there. Yeah. Um, and it was very important to me to be respectful of the people who have lived yeah. that. But it's, that's coming back to sort of that 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 trope, like it's really handy to have a character going back somewhere because they're learning about it at the same time as the reader. They're able to kind of ask those dumb questions. They're able to kind of make mistakes because it's not their home. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is that sort of, was that uh, part of your your thinking when you were kind of plotting the book? Was it sort of you wanted to have someone go back? Yeah, I just, I really didn't feel that I could write from the perspective of somebody that grew up there and lived lived that trauma and and had that history um but i believed i had enough that i could do a perspective from an outsider so yeah there was very much about about that um going in and and having that outsider perspective this story had been sort of bubbling away for a long time with you had you attempted to tell it in other ways before do you know the first time my mother heard any of my stories about Northern Ireland was the first when I released the self-published book and I told the stories about things that I'd seen and dealt with over there and, um, yeah, the various paramilitary organisations I'd worked with. I mean, she knew I'd worked with them, but the being in a riot and and, uh, helping kids who'd been kneecapped and um, having both sides dragged me to meetings to um, tell me their side of the story and um, all of that. My mum had never heard any of that because I just didn't talk about it when I got home. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when I now know when I got home I had, you know, some level of PTSD from dealing with things. Still hate helicopters. Yeah. Still really, really hate the sound of helicopters. Well, they're so evocative as well. You sort of, it's almost that sort of Vietnam War thing of the helicopters. Yeah, and, and over there, like if you, when I was walking home from work, that they just hover really low above you, and then they put a spotlight on you, and they just follow you up the street. And it was really confronting. It's like, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, you almost needed an Australian flag on your back. Oh, believe me, I've never said g'day so many times. I think it's the only time in my life I've ever used g'day everywhere and anywhere I went. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like in when I was working across McGlan, I'd have a, a, a group of young kids, you know, five to ten-year-olds, and and a, a British patrol would come through and they'd kneel and they'd train their sights on us just so we knew that that there was a it was a power thing and it was... But at the same time, these are the same soldiers that had to fly in by helicopter into the base because otherwise they'd get, 
you know, bombed on the road. So yeah. I, every side had fear and and driving them. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I remember I went to um, Belfast in 96 and got off the ferry and there was a patrol walking straight towards us. Well, they weren't in the um, in their armour because it was the peace talks had started, so it was kind of like, well, but they still had guns. And it was like this, you're sort of seeing machine 12 guns. machine guns yeah. walking towards you, which was incredibly confronting. I mean, it's sort of, we just don't really understand that world at all. And this is the world that Sarah's choosing to go back into. Well, I don't know if she's choosing to go back into it. I think she's uh, forced to go back into yeah. it. I don't know. Could she have left Riley to his own? No. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because Australia actually has, like, really strong connections to mm. Ireland. We kind of – a lot of our historical figures have come from Irish backgrounds. I think maybe it's the underdog kind of history, that um, scrappy fighter kind of thing. And also and also there is the, the – um, English versus the Irish and the long tradition of that um, and holding up maybe it depends on which which view you have of who's the hero, yeah. if that makes sense. So I think there's a lot to play with there and there's a lot of – there is. There's a lot of history going back that um, is easy to explore and, and the people are just so much fun. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's a place that's just – brimming with life in many ways. So do you think that um, Sarah will appear in a, another novel? Not at this stage. I think her story has been told. Um, as much as she's very dear to my heart, um, no, I don't, not, not at this point. Yeah. So you're working on another one? I am. It's a standalone. It's set in Australia. Um, interestingly, it's dealing with a missing person again. Um, but this time the novel opens with a sister receiving a call. A woman receiving a call from her sister from the bit of a car. Mm. Well, that's a very dramatic start. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then it goes on to the repercussions of that on yeah. the family and, and how they are dealing with it. And, of course, there's crime and lots of pace. Well, I hope there's lots of crime. Because I, <laughs> I can't seem to like... help but not write something quite pacey. Yeah. Which is actually like this book is, is quite pacey. It is quite the um, the page turner. There's so much sort of going on. Um, it's got quite an energy to it. Like it did sort of remind me a little of sort of um, like Lee Child and that sort of very driven main character. Yeah, the the drive. I, I suppose the differentiating uh, the different point would be that that Lee Child has skills, and Sarah doesn't have you know any military skills, and I think. I enjoy that idea yeah. of throwing somebody, a normal person, into a thriller that they they having to deal with those situations, but they don't have that. Yeah. Background. What sort of crime books do you like to read? I love Michael Robotham, uh, Sarah Bailey. I mean, oh, all the Australians. I mean, I, the, yeah. the Adrian McKinty's Sean Duffy series. I was really enjoyed. Um, through to Police procedural, Danuka McKenzie's um, The Torrent, the recent one. Um, I'll read anything. It, I love um, Anna Downs, like the mm-hmm. kind of atmospheric kind of uh, psychological thriller. Yeah, I, I we are so blessed in Australia with some amazing 
amazing crime writers. Yeah, it's just going um, and it's just getting better and better. I mean, mm. but I do. I always come back to crime. Always have. Ever since Nancy Drew. All right. Well, that's probably a good point to sort of wrap it up there with Nancy Drew. But we can really have a bit of a group discussion. But while we're sort of uh, preparing for that, hopefully you're all opening a tab and buying yourself a copy of The Good Mother uh, as we set ourselves up. And remember to buy your copy at Booktober through the link on our Facebook page where you can also then join in our conversation with our online book club. All right, well, now we've got the team assembled to do our normal chat about the book. So I'm going to open up to the table and sort of say, you know, what sort of reader would we sort of pitch this to? We're going to say this is for um, the sort of typical crime reader of older female. Do you reckon that it's a sort of the energy that male readers would be interested in? I think I think it would appeal to the broad spectrum. I mean, we, we've... The, in fact, there's some lovely blurbs on the book. We've got, um, I think Michael Robotham's given it a good blurb. This story wouldn't let me go. So Michael was in there, mm. um, which is lovely to get. Mm. But no, I think I think because it's got that action element, it, it would work across readers. But it's kind of interesting when it comes to who reads crime fiction because, you know, our audiences tend to be predominantly female. And I think it's because... Or at least they, they come to our events and they and they share, etc. I think men, and I'm looking at Andy <laughs> right now as yes. the only male in the room, men don't share their reading and their experience of reading as much. So you don't actually know that men are reading crime written by women as often as we know that women are reading it. But I would I would have thought this this would be picked up by anyone. And and you mentioned um Lee Child and the Jack Reacher, you know, type of character who, who who takes action, who moves, but hasn't got the experience or the military background. So you've got a driving character that takes it through. What do you think, Catherine? Um, when you were saying that, I was actually look, thinking about our online events because um, we have, for example, had prizes people write in. We have a couple of books to give away. And there's always been, I try and get two books if I can, and it's usually been men and women. So maybe men listen more online and don't come to events as much. That's perhaps a difference. I don't know. Please tell us when <laughs> you send us feedback. Um, but it's a good point. I think maybe men like more action-packed, um, you know, the thriller. Maybe the thriller genre is more masculine and the, the psychological crime fiction is more traditionally feminine. be nice to blur those but this does have both it does have that really strong mother um and having a son living with me at the moment i could relate to some <laughs> yeah mum, you've you know older but no i won't yet you do that no sorry leave those shoes right there um so that that's a very strong grounding and real element can I just come back to the discussion that you were having before? Because you, you, we were trying to find the word for male dialogue. Hmm. And the word that popped into my head that stayed there, and it, it makes me think of my husband and his favourite crime novel, and his favourite crime novel opening would be I dropped to one knee and fired twice, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a complete absence of adjectives and adverbs and all the rest of it. And the, the word that popped into my head was terse. Yes. There's a terseness to the male dialogue and the male writing that I think appeals. And the, the great Elmore Leonard would be one of those precisely yeah. who would leave out every adverb, every adjective, just drive it through, stick to the facts, you know, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think this book really is 
a book for women who are perhaps new to crime. Um, and I think that's often – part of that is, of course, of the title. So it's The Good Mother. Part of it is the way the cover's been designed. So for, for listeners, it's um, very uh, large pink, bright pink lettering on a green background with a woman uh, from the back who's running. And um, I think Ray's been talking about what she likes to – explore being the everyday woman thrown into extraordinary events. And I think that provides a segue for the general reader who's looking for perhaps even a new genre. So the reader who will read contemporary novel or domestic um, fiction who's prepared for some more action but without um, alienating the male reader. Although I, I, I do see this as as being directed towards the female readership who are who to be frank are the ones who are reading most fiction anyway hmm. but without losing men so i think the men would get it more from um word of mouth yeah it's interesting because it, you know the the belinda audiobook rights were sold quite quickly that's a very big male demographic truck drivers apparently are huge purchasers mm. of audiobook mm. is it yeah i didn't know that i was just surprised by how quickly it sold on Belinda. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know who's buying it. but And I did get, uh, when I self-published, I was surprised by the, uh, the men that I had reach out yeah. and who had read it. That really, I thought it was going to be, and it's called The Good Mother. I, I thought it would only appeal, um, yeah, more to, the, more to the female market. But I, I have had some men reach out and, yeah. and say, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that would be the IRA. Yeah, and you've got a male character within it who's, mm-hmm. you know, well, a few of them, yeah. Oh, quite strong, strong, strong male, male characters. characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, so can I just clarify this? The, you sold the Belinda audio rights when it was still self-published. Yes. And did you approach them or they approached you? So, um, a, so a sight-impaired woman approached them and said, I'm trying to read this on Braille but I'd really I like to listen it. to yeah. it. Can you make it? And then they approached me and made it so i think that's that's really interesting can i ask you how you did your promote how you promoted the book when it was self-published because i know a few people who have got recently published books and have got quite good reviews but are struggling with getting the book out there because you know you don't have you don't have anybody pushing it and you don't have distribution and so they're doing i'm thinking of one woman friend in particular she's doing a lot of events she's a good speaker so she just books events for herself but it's hard going what would how did you do it what were your, would your advice be it is hard going um i nitty-gritty did a list of people and uh, who were either people i knew well and, and approached them and said can i send you a book um and you know appear on your blog or, or on your podcast or whatever or be considered for those things. But what I did was I packaged the book, um, I wrapped it quite – I got a friend's help who's very good with this and wrapped it quite well and we put barbed wire around it and I included um, photos from my time in Northern Ireland. So it was kind of like a bit of a point of difference and when they opened it up, um, which meant people wanted to put it on social media because it was different. Um and yeah, then I just kept contacting people. It was about being brave as well. It's really hard to ask people to, mm. you know, 
And social media was important then? I think so, yeah. A lot of a lot of readers came on board who I didn't know through social media, through other contacts. Did you have a proper plan when you started or did it evolve? It evolved, but the the bake the the centre of my plan was sending out I think I sent out thirty, I can't remember, um, out to various writers and podcasters yeah, yeah I did and yeah. and but you know very respectfully yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just lucky a lot of people came on board um, I think having the Sunday Telegraph article also made a big difference mm-hmm. um, and that was as much to do with again just this, it's a it was a different angle that they could could write about I guess and the production values of that original book um, how did you feel about that? Because I've been a judge, as has Sue, for the Ned Kelly, and you could always tell the self-published books. You just look at them and think, okay. I mean, you do, everything's different about them. The format is different. The layout is different. In a way that I think is doesn't need to be, because all one needs to do is to go into a bookshop and make it look like that, that size, look at the margin. So I've never quite understood that. But how did you feel about the production values of that book compared to this book, the new one? I tried very hard. I did exactly what you said, went into a bookshop, got it, got the site, the dimensions, yeah. the um, the font size, everything. I tried as hard as I could to match um, what a traditionally published book looks like. It was important to me to put out as high a quality product as I was capable of. I'm sure that helped, you know, because seriously, mm. you could look at these books and you obviously you read them because they're there and that's your job. But it's it's good to start on the front foot, not on the back foot. Like I'm like I said, I I, I made the decision to self publish in February, and I didn't do it till December. I spent a lot of time, and I had the novel. You know, I did put it through an editing process as well with a professional editor who, editor who I paid. But all of that was as much about trying to create a, as professional a product as I could, which was a high a big learning curve. And I still got some things wrong. Mm. But that, that's really good to hear. And I, I'm that presumably, I mean, I may be wrong, but that I would imagine is part. You have to have a good book to start with. But having it look good is not going to do any harm, at least. No, it, mm. I think it matters a lot. And I think if you're going to self-publish, you need to understand that that's a commitment you're making. If you want it to work, if you want it to sell, if you want readers to be interested in picking it up. Mm. And have a plan, even though it might not be 100% there have a plan for exactly what you're going to do before you panic and have the book and think ah now what but that's actually a really interesting point is it because we all get sent so many books i mean sue gets a library every week to review and it, there is something about you know what is it about that book in that pile that you're going to pick up and for me it was having the ned kelly award on the front and kind of you know i, I pay attention to long lists and short lists and you kind of you look at all that stuff and I got really confused because I kind of knew that this book had come out last year but then it was coming out again and so there was kind of this intrigue and mystery about it. I'm absolutely with you Andy it's like when I go into Dan Murphy's and I'm looking for a wine and there's a new one there and if there's a gold star on it I might go oh well somebody liked it I might give that a go you know you want some reassurance so obviously having a sticker like you know, shortlisted for best debut crime on the front, gives the prospective reader who's looking for something, oh, okay, it's, it's got a, a seal of approval here. There's, there's going to be something of value. I'll take a chance. I'll buy it, even though I haven't heard about it, etc. So I, th- I think 
would you agree that that's oh, the value of that sticker? 100%. And, and the gift that they gave me in selecting my book um, was enormous. I, I really I didn't know that a, a self-published book would, would get that far and I'm very grateful that they considered it and, and put it up there because it changed my life and changed the trajectory of the book. And it, it did. It made people sit up and, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll have a look at it. Um, from agents and publishers to, you know, film and TV people kind of having a bit of a look at it. And it is an endorsement that a book's brand new and it's already won a prize or nearly won a prize, you know, been shortlisted for a prize. So it's it's sort of, it has an element of intrigue to start with, um, which is which I think is really good. And we were talking um, in our latest online event with Danuka McKenzie, who... And that was confusing as well, who won a prize, but the book wasn't published yet. So it's won a manuscript mm. prize. But again, so when was the book was published, it had prize winner on the front, which can't be a bad thing really in terms of in interesting people to pick it up. And in terms of um, reviews, I will get a nudge from my editor if the author has won a manuscript prize. He'll say, he will actually say, I'm sending this one to you. It won the the author won the manuscript prize, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it actually alerts um, literary editors. Mm. It alerts the general community. So it is, it is. How do you get noticed? And and what what lifts your book mm-hmm. above what's out there? You know, to, to the top of the pile. And it's true. You know, how many books? Oh, 10, 20 a month coming through and how do you get to the top of my tbr pile um without the nudge from my editor is you know Mm. has it got the seal what do i know has it won something overseas you know what's the appeal and then and then and then there's the first paragraph test that's right it's (laughs) got to deliver it's got to deliver and if that first paragraph that first page those first few pages and you pick so much from that in terms of style and the way in in which it's written. Um, that's that's the ultimate test. I do also think the cover plays a big part, um, and and the blurb, the back blurb. I've seen some some poorly written black back blurbs and some really well written ones. So um, that will, and I think that's that that's what a reader does. I mean, a, a cover attracts a title mm-hmm. um, that's one that you can remember. So HarperCollins essentially kept my blurb. Ah, I worked very, very, very hard at it and they essentially kept it and tweaked it a bit. But that, that, for example, you know, if you just threw up any old blurb, you know, thinking that people would buy it, I spent weeks and weeks. It's very hard, isn't it? Mm. I mean, when I first had to assist publishers with blurbs for my books, you don't realise how hard it is to write something that is attractive, says what you want it to say but doesn't say too much. Mm-hmm. What, what did you find that was the hardest about it? Just condensing the the information and making it sound exciting or interesting enough that someone would take that next step and turn the book over and open that first page. Yeah. Um, you've got to entice them in but you've also got to give them a sense of, of voice and character and everything in such a small, succinct way. Um, who, who did the bylines? The bylines are she's protected them from the truth. Can she save them from the, her past? Me. And then show me a soldier who would fight harder than a mother to save That's her son. That's a line from the book. Yes. So they're, yeah. they're both mine. Um, but again, I worked a long time to do the byline. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I didn't. I didn't do um, "Show Me a Soldier" in on the uh, self-published version. I wish I had. It didn't even yeah. occur to me to bring that out of the book because it's, it's, it's a line a from the book. Right. Powerful but, line. But yeah, she, um, she's protected them from the truth. Was, I came up with that. Mm. What was the cover of your self-published book like? Uh, interesting enough, it it was a um, it was blues and, and yellows, I think, and it had a, a, like a sight, a gun sight, okay. with a woman. But it was also like a tunnel with a woman running away in the tunnel. So running. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then it had another character kind of running behind her and then it had barbed wire right. kind of around it. Um, Which this one doesn't. It has the running woman. It, it's interesting. And the that woman in the book is a runner. And yeah. I thought that was good. And also the whole thing about not being able to run away from your past, mm-hmm. which she did for a long time, but now she can't. But it doesn't have anything that says war, does it? No. That, that, that's what I think um, is probably deliberate, which is why I, would, I said that it's for, for a for mainstream yeah. readership. So when Charlotte Wood's book, The Way of Natural, The Natural Way, Way of Things, things. came out, it's a, it's a very violent yeah. um mm-hmm rage-filled book and beautifully written but the title the cover was of flowers and only if you looked very carefully did you see that things weren't quite as they seemed and I suspect that was done so that was a book that you could gift Mm. um, and a book that you could pick up and uh, without being shocked and put off, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because yeah, the uh, content of that book is pretty well, strong. It, but but you can. But it did so well, obviously, and so you could gift it without someone knowing about the book, but you knowing that they're the right person for it, without the title being to the cover being too shocking. Mm. And I would say similar to this, it's yeah. um, it's a book that you can gift and that you can pick up and um, not be. Mm. And the war comes second. So so the mother comes first and the war comes second. I'm trying to think of shocking book covers. I can't actually think of any. Can you, Sue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm, the devil's work. I'm, I'm interviewing Gary Linnell uh, in a couple of weeks and he's written this book about Frederick Deeming who might be, may might have been Jack the Ripper. And there's a, there's a the, the, the V for devil is made... Um, from a switchblade, like a bloody switchblade. Yeah, I was just looking at it yesterday. But do you think that would attract or attract a certain person? I think it would get your true crime reader mm. and a male true crime reader more. It's um, it's black and white. It's got the bloody red. Uh, That's the devil's work, and it's 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 a bloody, very well written story. So, um, but that's not who you're looking for here. No, no. no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see the comments and the feedback on the the Facebook page about this book. I think that people are going to be saying all sorts of things, which is going to be great, and there's going to be some lively discussion because it's just it because of the subject matter. There, it is sort of black and white, and you, you know people will have opinions and there'll be discussions. So it's definitely going to be one to look out for. And follow. So um, I, I think we probably need to leave it there and sort of say, you know, thanks, Ray, for coming in and sharing your book and talking more about the, the process. It's been great. All right. So, so thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our bad All About Crime book club. 
The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.